Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're talking to Preeti Teenager, Desmond Elliott Prize nominated author of We That Are Young. We chat about the help and hindrance of basing your book on a pre-existing narrative, how to discuss big themes without sacrificing plot, and how to use characters as a tool to convey political ideas. Hi there, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. We're so delighted to have you on the show, and um, congratulations on your Desmond Elliott Prize nomination for your book, We Are We That Are Young. Thank you. <laughs> Such exciting, exciting times. Yeah, it's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? We'll start off with that. Okay, so We That Are Young is a kind of big state of the nation novel, um, and it's based on Shakespeare's King Leo, um, but it's all set in contemporary India, and it's told in five different voices, so um, with a bit of interruption from a really old, crazy man in between, so six different voices, and um, it really just sort of mapped the story of King Leo onto events in contemporary India, which is... You know, it it really brings together all the sides of my own background as a British Asian writer who grew up learning Shakespeare, but also with this sort of myth of of India around me. So, yeah, it took seven years. Seven years. Seven years. Not surprised. Um, And you're a Shakespearean academic. You're you're no no. Oh, that's what I read about about it. It's interesting. That's an interesting one because. When I think about people who do Shakespeare as academia, I feel a bit in awe, you know, because they're people who really, they have like a really focused um, grasp on all of the plays or one particular aspect of Renaissance history or something. But my PhD, which is actually in creative writing, and I used that time when I was 35 to kind of, I had been working in human rights and advocacy for a really long time after training in journalism and um, really wanted to always write a novel. So finally thought to myself, I've got to stop wishing for this and actually do something about it. Um, And did a night class, got a portfolio of short stories together, applied for an MA part-time around my job. um, And then after two years of doing that, decided that I was going to try and write this novel, We That Are Young. So got some funding, got my PhD. And um, so technically I'm I'm an academic with a lot of different um, hats. Yeah. But the reason that I ended up becoming really focused on Shakespeare in my academic work was because when I finished the book in 2013, um, it got sent out to lots of publishers, but no one picked it up. And I realised that in order to kind of make a go of this massive career change, I would have to find a job <laughs> and try and build on that academic research that I had done. So I sort of taken a bit of a winding route into um, becoming an academic and my critical work, my research work looks at Shakespeare plays in conflicts and post-conflict zones. Okay, interesting. And, and I, like, so how, what was it about King Lear specifically that kind of appealed to you and allowed you to tell the kind of like multi-generational story that you have done? All right, well, King Lear starts with the partition of a kingdom and it ends in a civil war. So 
that for me growing up really resonated because obviously India was partitioned by the British in 1947 um, and there were lots of different kind of competing forces around that time but one of the things that came out of that was that states that weren't already in the empire like India was a collection of sort of princely states and all of those princely states had to give up their kingdoms to the new nation so you've already got this idea of kings without kingdoms and Maharajas you know with, with no no palaces to rule or whatever and one of the states that became quite contentious in that was Kashmir so that for me really represented this sort of move, drive towards what happens when a country is partitioned that results in this tragedy of war, where Kashmir is still a contested territory between India and what is what became Pakistan, that section of um, India that was partitioned off into India and Pakistan. So here was a situation, a historical situation, and a play that I absolutely loved. I studied it for A-level like lots of people um, do in this country. And I'm thinking, wow, I can see so many resonances and the major plot themes and the kind of development of this play in India. But there's some deeper things as well, and they have to do with things like women's bodies being connected to land and dowry and how pernicious and horrible that sense of being sold from your father's house into your wet marriage um you know it's little it might sound a bit outdated in in the uk but it's still very much um to do with transaction and change when you think about how even now the state promotes marriage as a form of you know tax protection almost so there's still some financial things and residual things that and King Lear really speaks to all of that stuff. It speaks to misogyny, it speaks to toxic masculinity, corruption in society, oppressive regimes, fascism, all of the all of the things that we're dealing with here um, in America, across Europe and, and Russia and in India. Yeah. And how did having that um, already existing structure of a story help or hinder your own writing? process did you ever feel oh I'd really like to take it you know somewhere else but I have to sort of stick to at least you know an idea of that narrative I remember sitting down to um try to work out which bits I was going to keep in and which bits I wasn't and um, for my own purposes and I did quite a lot of reading around who had done um adaptations and appropriations of King Lear before because you know it's a 400 year old play there are thousands of these things and mm. all done in different ways um with unique perspectives but I quickly kind of realised that for me, the most interesting challenge that I wanted to set myself was to see how, how I could do it so that I got all of it in. Mm. And it was both a kind of pleasure and a, and a curse, as you probably guessed, because obviously Shakespeare's language is just so extraordinary and it's so compelling. And I didn't want to write something that didn't stand on its own legs. So I had a lot of fun filling in the gaps Novels are very different from plays and, you know, there's a lot of kind of backstory that you can play with and emotional kind of connections and things you can make between characters and stuff. So that was that was a challenge. The big set pieces in King Lear are so monumental. The storm, there's a scene where one character blinds another, a couple of characters. Um, the partition of the kingdom scene um, and, of course, the end, which is just, so tragic it almost 
sometimes makes people laugh when they watch it in the audience because we can't almost cope with the fact that people are dying all over the stage. Um, and when I got to those big set pieces, I really had to sort of get myself together and say, okay, how am I going to make this integral in my own story um, and not let the Shakespeare's bones poke through the text but still stay true to the idea that somehow this play has a real resonance with my setting. And it also has some kind of historical resonance as a cultural artifact because Shakespeare was used um, in the arsenal of empire as a sort of soft colonizing force to civilize the natives with literature and culture and so on. Um, and there's a real love for Shakespeare in India Alongside um, and in contention with and in discussion with Indian playwrights and other and other forms of poetry, but it's definitely got a very strong grip on the cultural imagination, and that's because of empire. Yeah, there is so much going on here, and like you said, with kind of like working out um, how to fit everything in. Does this mean that you're like a street, like you're a real planner? Have you you know you spreadsheets and all that, or no? no? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm very chaotic. Um, I, I tend to sketch out things that I know that I'm going to struggle with, like date lines and things that have numbers in maths. <laughs> the maths are required to sort out people's ages and all that stuff. But, no, I, it really all comes from almost like an instinctive feeling when I'm writing, that this is where the character wants to go and this is how they're going to suddenly... So they, that's why people say sometimes characters surprise them and that's definitely true with the characters in We That Are Young because I had no clue when I started out that these three daughters of mine were going to turn into such independent, strong-minded women with their own sexualities and their own determinations. Um, one of them has this insane Twitter account that she is basically ruling the popular imagination with um, and no one knows it's her and that happened really late on in the drafts so you know she, she, she's like a totally other person to me um, and the things that she did and the way that she did them I that kind of happened as it went along and you have to give yourself space to have those wonderful like plot points just form in your head like how at the beginning of a writing journey can you know that that's going to be something that's in there it's nice to let it develop organically yeah definitely and, it's, and for me, there's a sort of geeky engagement with the Shakespeare in a way because I've decided that I wanted to see if I could do it all in the setting of contemporary India and it worked really well. But when you actually take the play um, and try to map the scenes into primary focus, it fell very easily into those five young people's voices and their, and their points of view. It seemed like Shakespeare already knew that, that he had built in that structure. And it was just waiting to be turned inside out by someone, yeah. um, that person with me. So. There's a very Shakespearean idea in that, in, in your character who sets up the Twitter account but no one knows it's her. That strikes me as a very sort of Shakespearean idea of, you know, the, the, the pretending to be someone else and everyone being duped by, you know. Yeah, Shakespeare's full of these doubles and people mm. hiding their identities and I think that's a modern way that we can do that, you know. Um I, I've got people who follow me on Twitter and I have no idea who they are because they have like a mask or whatever. Um, I'm curious to know. <laughs> it gives a voice, like, it's just a powerful tool as well, like the, that kind of, the fact that a, a platform like that gives a voice to, to so many people. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, We're living in this age of fake news, aren't we? We're living in this age of 
where someone can say something really compelling and everyone and the culture is such that we all believe it. So what it's actually doing there is it's saying, okay, this is a fact. I'm putting this on Twitter, knowing perhaps it's not quite right, but because we're in this sort of climate that we want to believe it, that's telling us something about our own times. You know, like if I said, oh, there are no there are no women in positions of power in any states in the world before 1930. I have no idea if that's true or not, but somehow this thing might gather its own energy because we're living in times where we would we actually feel like that could be true. Mm. And there's something really devastating about that, and there's something that gives us a clarity about our lives and how we want how we imagine our world around us and it tells us something about how hunted maybe we feel or how much we feel energized that we really need to start making change. Yeah. Do you ever feel a sort of tug between the academic in you who is, you know, always searching out for the you know, for rigid fact and the writer in you who is, you know, able to be florid and able to, you know, be imaginative. I don't think the writing's flourish. <laughs> well, I mean, to be, for you, not specifically, with, you know, but with this book, but, you know, the idea of letting your imagination be, you know, run wild and, you know, and, and to create, you know, imaginative worlds and, and, and be creative with characters and... Literature is where my heart is and... As an academic, I'm not sort of stuck on rigidity of facts. I'm not a new. I'm not working in like the historicist mode where I'm looking for revelations about Renaissance England or whatever that will enlighten our understanding of Shakespeare's text. That's not my field in any way. Um, and I gain a lot from people who do that kind of research because I find it very interesting to read. But it's not where my academic research interest lies. Um, as a writer and a reader, like books fiction that's where I live that's my country um so I don't think that there is a kind of tension for me between the two different worlds that I have to go through um writing academic work is is harder for me than working on fiction because it requires rigorousness it requires certain kind of theoretical mind um people have who have gone before me do this brilliantly and it sometimes can be overwhelming you know to think wow all these people have done all this amazing theory where do I stop doing research and when do I stop thinking on my own terms so yeah I suppose the writing style requires different types of brain and that's quite difficult sometimes mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah fiction is where it yeah, well, you can. T- I mean, you're you're bossing it, so. <laughs> and like, it's, I mean, it's it's like like I mentioned earlier, like in ter- it t- it takes on it tackles a lot, you know. You're like straight into kind of like the hypocrisy of the Indian class system and caste system. You know, you tackle kind of eco feminism and climate change, which is you know interesting. Sort of extreme material wealth and power. Desperate. There's just so much going on, and like it's um it's it is undeniably political. And obviously, yeah. you're obviously you're an activist yourself. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you kind of wove these um, themes through the story? Um, and kind of like you know how how yeah. First of all, tell us a bit about that. <laughs> how you kind of wove them in? 
Well, I think that because I started with these characters, it really gave, and it was going to be told in these five voices, and I really wanted them to be distinct from each other. So they've got their own ways of talking, they've got their own language that they use, um, their syntax is all different from each other's, and and their personalities, the times they've grown up in and the way they perceive the world, we're all different, no matter if we're in the same generation or with the sisters, they're all slightly you know, different generations. So I think when you start with character, it really gives you this scope to explore these different aspects of the world you've got a young man who's obsessed with cars and a young woman who's an activist and you put them in conversation with each other then you then you can then you can sort of get the politics in there through what they want to do um and how they talk to each other and how they miss each other and how they argue with each other and so for me it's it really does start with character that's where i find it most interesting to delve into and that's a lo- lovely way of like you know the kind of age-old showing not telling kind of thing like that's yeah like showing not telling is such an interesting idea because as soon as you say that you've told someone to do something and so I suppose that that's sort of like we I was going to ask kind of about how um how you balance then having a lot of that kind of stuff to say with a tangible engaging plot but then I suppose that comes down to characters as well doesn't it really characters people want to read about People think people might think I've cheated because I've basically lifted Shakespeare's plot, but it's the story of a nation, and it's not just to do with Shakespeare. There's a lot of other poets, um, epic mythology, and, and and other kinds of literary influences and cinematic influences in the book as well. Because I'm trying to construct something and make the reader aware that it's a construction. At the same time, I mean, when we watch theatre, we know it's going on on the stage, even if we feel the feelings, all the feelings, um, it, we still know that the curtains come down and we have this space between us. So, Joseph's really aware of that in his text. I'm not really answering your question, uh, which was about just how to keep it kind of like uh, en- like engaging, like this, or keep the plot being really engaging and people retain, turning the page. Yeah, okay. I didn't really set out to write a page then, but that's how it came out, I suppose, um, which says something. What I, what I really wanted to do is capture in the text the way that it's written, this very fast-forward feeling that I, that I think India is in at the moment, um, a sort of rising hunger for safety of financial and material wealth, um, and it may be that people are being left behind in that. And it's counterbalanced by religiosity, sort of fundamentalism in religion. It has The two things have to, are going together as well. So there are Indian texts around, sacred texts around how to build wealth, how to maintain it, what to do with it when you have it, who's allowed to have it, how much they're allowed to have, and so on. And these are really ancient epic texts which are informing how people run their businesses and how they interact with each other, whether they give to charity and so on. So so page turning and plot is really important, but I think it sort of comes down to form of language and sentences and how you choose to tell the story in, and how you match that to the world that you're creating. That That's where that sense of forward movement and motivation comes from yeah. for me. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I want to write a page turner and this is how you do it. Well, you've nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as we've talked about, the the story centres around one one family, um, but they are also they're they're in King Lear, whereas they're confirmed 
power and status by the fact that they are nobility. Um, in in your book, they are um, conferred that by business. They are very they're a very successful uh, business organisation, which uh, I really wanted to ask about the the kind of conflation between familial ties and business ties and how we relate to our colleagues and how businesses run you know they're sort of run on similar premise you know structures to the to families with a hierarchical sort of order were those two themes that you also wanted to look at you know corporation obviously is you know and the impact of a big business and wealth as you've mentioned but also family and how those things either do interact or are sort of opposite what where did you sort of the question there is a question in there somewhere (laughs) (laughs) all right so again when we think about the UK we're talking about a a society which is built on feudalism where families family politics and family dynasties and dynastic politics were very much the order of the day um people's even people's seats in the house of lords are handed down through families so you know we have we have we seen we have this like thin crust where we've moved on to these things, but our deep institutions still like this. Mm. It's where the idea of nepotism comes from. You know, we 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 still got the royal family. These things are inherited. Wealth is inherited. Land is inherited. Women marry in those communities to keep that in the family. The idea of the family business um, and its linkage to how society is run is just in the DNA of this country. And that is true in India as well. So you've got dynastic politics that go from the Gandhian Nehru dynasty up till very recently. And family businesses such as the Tata family, not if you, I mean... I've maybe heard of them. I don't think I could, yeah, express much knowledge. Okay, so this fascinates me because who are the new... Who are the new kings of our world? They're the corporations, aren't they? They're the people whose whose businesses, their corporations are so big that they might, let's say, own an oil rig, a set of oil rigs that crack down chemicals that make polyester. So then they take that and they make have a polyester mill, which then makes a huge amount of fabric or plastics that go into all of these things that we buy, that we wear, that we put our lunch in, that we ride on the metro in or subway or tube, you know, every single thing you are consuming and buying and using comes down to that oil that this one family owns. But they also own the rest of the chain. Mm. So where are you free in that? And where are you making free decisions in that? And so at the bottom line, they're starting a shop where they're going to sell some polyester suits to all of those young men who are then going out to sell clothes in other markets around the world. I mean, that, I'm not making this up. This family exists. Mm. And they are Indian. Really? Okay, interesting. Right. Okay. <laughs> so then we map this into the steel world, and the Tata Steel family runs many, many businesses in the UK. They're start, they run, you know, you, you just have to kind of do a little bit of research. Um, we don't know about it. It's very shadowy and don't write about the world of work in fiction very much. For me, it's completely obvious that this is a part of a kind of new type of colonisation um, and it seems to have no 
seem to be just the way the world is. But actually, we have choices, um, we hope, unless they do actually own everything, in which case, we're done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things where, as, as a fiction writer, you think, wow, this is, this is almost too easy. Yeah. Um, but it has to be put out there so that we start thinking about these things. And fiction is often one of the ways in which you can get more people to do it than writing a non-fiction book, which goes to an audience who's already interested in business, for example, or or any of the things that I've described. And, um, you know, for me, I feel like should businesses be handed down through families? I don't know the answer to that. Should Should politics be dynastic? <laughs> that was absolutely not <laughs> how do elites work they look, they work by protecting their privilege and where does that privilege really have its beginning it begins in families because mm. well, it, it put me in mind of um, obviously the British monarchy you mentioned it um, who were also nicknamed the firm and, 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 and it really kind of put and how even they are having to almost commercialise themselves to stay relevant you know they're obviously taking PR advice you know behind the scenes and and like you say they're now having to compete with the new kings who are the corporations and where does that old sort of feudal system sit in this new world I think it's I think it sits as a glass ceiling that's where it sits it, it, it you'll come up against elite elitism and protectionism all of the time in many, many different places, from universities to arts industry to, you know, how many people can actually become royal? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> just to blow up to that to that level. But you know the other reason why in the in in the novel the um, business that this family runs is called the company is because it connects it to the East India Company which was the origins of the empire in India. So every choice I'm making as a writer is trying to remind the reader or, or give you echoes in your mind that these things have historical roots in colonialism. They've come together in, in a way through me being born in the UK and knowing the Shakespeare like I do and perhaps having that insider view of... India, but also being an outsider in both places. So when you think about the East India Company and how it went to India and then it became a political force and then it became an empire that was ruling hundreds of lives and hearts and minds and be, being involved in schools and things. And that has gone now, but it's given way, it's given way to um, corporations which are doing similar things. So in, in India, there are whole towns that are run by businesses. Some of those towns, one of the towns is a Tata town, run by that firm I was telling you about with the seal. Um, it's one of the only places in India where you can drink water straight from the tap. So people's lives are shaped by working in these places, and it's called Jamshed Boy, you can look it up. Um, there's a sort of inheritance of how to make money between empire and corporation. I'm making those links in the works. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and so, and you've, you've one of your characters is returns to um, to India from living in America, and having that kind of perspective as from a character was that kind of a tool to be able to put in your kind of experience of living in, know, having an intricate knowledge of both. Or 
Well, Jaden, this character that you're talking about, is like an alpha male American guy, sort of models on an American psycho. So he's nothing like me. <laughs> and he looks at the world. The reason that I had him come home is partly because that's what happens in the play. You know, you've got this young man who comes home after nine years abroad. And... Um, but Jeevan has an interesting gaze, and he has this gaze which um, which wants to see poverty, and it wants to see nostalgically, and it wants to see that India of sort of the Raj delight that we all are very familiar with on our TV screens in the UK. So it was my way of taking that down. Yeah. Um, he 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 has this real tussle in his in himself between that nostalgic view. And wanting to be part of, you know, the highly fast-forward civilization that the India is is moving in, um, and he chooses the side of the money. Um, he leaves behind being an outside, an Indian outsider in in America, and he wants to embrace that whole hungry capitalism that I was talking to you about. And do you have any? Um to move a little bit back to sort of your process of writing it, how long it took? A, it took seven, seven years, years. And, <laughs> and were you writing that sort of on and off? You know, you said that you did. Um, you know, you you went and did writing. You know, PhD indeed. Um, was that? Were you writing it throughout the whole duration of your PhD and your MA, or were you writing it on and off? How did that? You know, how did that seven years look? What did that look like? Okay, so in the three years of the PhD, I was working on the novel and also a kind of critical part of um, the PhD process. So you have to think about your work in a sort of context. And for that, I wrote a 40,000-word piece of writing about different adaptations of King Lear from James Smiley's Iowa set, A Thousand Acres. There's another Indian Lear called um, Such a Long Journey, which is by a writer called Rohinton Mystery. Um, he's got two books that he's based on Lear, one's called Family Matters and the other one, as I said, is called Such a Long Journey. But it's here's a very specific in a very in a, in a culture which is Parsi, and they're all set in Mumbai. So I didn't feel like I was repeating what he was doing in any way. And Edward Bond's play Lear, which is one of my favourite Lears of all time, um, that is about communist communism and the Berlin War going up and so on. So. Um, so that was what I was doing for three years. And during that time, I also went to Kashmir and Delhi to work on the book and research and listen to people, talk to people. I joined protests. I did all sorts of things to get the details of the book absolutely right. And as I said, I finished that in 2013. And I had a fantastic agent who really believed in the book and sent it out to all of London Publishing and some in India as well. Um, and I had this experience, which when I look back now, probably made me as a writer, where everybody rejected it, one after the other. It just took sort of three or four months before I was like, please, no more. I cannot do this again. And you have to make a decision then when you have that experience about what you're going to do with all of this material that you've amassed. And for me, there was no way I was going to not carry on in academia because I absolutely love teaching and I love having time to think about stuff, write stuff and, and put it out there. So I had to get a job. That was the bottom line financially. Um, and I took this 
kind of 10, 15 years working in human rights that I had had before the PhD and the Shakespeare work. And I began to identify places in the world where actors, writers, filmmakers, directors were making Shakespeare in their own languages to mediate their own conflict and post-conflict experiences. And I was very lucky because somebody employed me to think about that for two years at Queen Mary University and Warwick University. So that was called a postdoc research fellowship. Um, and I just left my novel while that was going on. But, you know, sometimes it just won't go away. People around me, my friends, my family, my partner, just wouldn't let me give up on it. Um, and, you know, Twitter is this kind of, I have this love-hate relationship with Twitter, and I'm sort of on it quite a lot. And one day I was bemoaning my fate, lying in bed, thinking I'm never going to get published. Um, and, I, and I saw this competition advertised for novellas. And the prize for that was being published. If you won this prize, they would publish your book. So I thought, okay, I have a very deep bottom drawer, and there is a novella-length story in there. And um, I dusted it off and I sent it in. And this was the day before the deadline. It was a volunteer press based in Norwich. Um, and I won it. Yes. So, fantastic. <laughs> um, this little book came out and the guy who published it, Andy McDonald, <laughs> asked me if I had anything else. And I was like, wow, my novel. Um, so he said, let me have a look at it. And I sent him the middle chapter, the jeep section of the book, which is all set in this imagined slum and like a kind of imagined mental state called Nepertula. Um And he took it round to the house of Gallibega Press. He literally took my print out, he read it, he took the print out, he knocked on their door one evening and said, I've got this writer, you have to read this. Because they're all based in Norwich and it's quite a small town. Yeah. Luckily they were home. Um, they, he stood there while they read it and, oh, wow. um, and they bought it. That's an incredible story. Yeah, four years later. Yeah. So that was like end of 2016, and it came out last year. And now it's getting such an amazing response as well, which must be amazing after such a journey. It's really validating. Um, First of all, that a press like Gary Beggar, who published such incredible literary fiction, would take on the book. Um, Then because of the way that they constructed, they, they really allowed me the space to do all the things I wanted to do, so write in different languages or keep it that long or anything that perhaps I wouldn't have been able to with a different publisher. Um, and I'm really glad that their faith in me and my parents, my dad's faith and all my friends and my partner, that it's all paying off now, you know, because it's astonishing to have readers. That's the best bit of it. Like the reviews are fantastic, whatever. Some of the reviews make you want to punch people. Some of them make you want to hug people. You can't take any of it on too much. And prizes are wonderful. And Desmond Elliott in particular has just been like finding a group of other writers whose work I think, wow, I sit alongside this and I've made some friends out of it too, which is fantastic. But it's the readers that really, you think, I had no idea you were out there and... Yet, in all that time, in all those drafts, in all those nights, in all the tears, there you were. And now it's yours. And, yeah, and very well deserved. And so, what, I mean, what, I don't know if it's a bit of a redundant question now. What advice would you give to anyone who is sitting in that position, who's either, you know, got halfway through their novel, or it's sitting in a bottom drawer, 
or they've had rejections and they're not sure you know what decision to make next I think rejections are part of the story advice of publishers when you reject novels be kind and remember it's somebody's heartfelt work um, when you think about critiquing their book remember how personally that's going to get taken <laughs> and for the writer you read those emails or you get those no's try not to take it personally because you are your book your book is a separate thing to you it means that you've got a life and a whole kind of world around that you can go and regroup in and then come back to your text and ask yourself what you want to do with it and I don't mean should I rewrite it for no person or change the name to Jack or whatever or take out all the full stops or something. I mean, what is the form for you? And what are you trying to say? And are you doing that with every scene, every line, and every word? Is everything that you want, is everything working towards the overall hope in purpose that not that primary surprise, but that somebody is going to understand what the heart of what you are doing is. That, that's all I can say. And don't give up. Don't give up, yeah. Because it's often you, it's them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. I feel, I feel more inspired, so yeah. thank you very much. <laughs> The Riff Raff podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com.